everyone. Welcome to episode 146 of the Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies for the casual spike in modern. This is an all-modern episode, I think. They all are these days. They really are, yeah. I might be talking about a Pioneer PTQ. There was a ban in Historic, and I think this is the first and last time we talk about that. I can't believe we, we really should talk about this briefly. Yeah, maybe we, can, maybe we can touch on it on the breakdown. I'm Stanislav. I'm in Chicago. With me on the line from Denver, Colorado. One and only Shane Beeps. Sounds like you want to go fast, Dan, but I want to go slow. I want to take it slow. I want to talk about my Thanksgiving in October I just had. I had, I had mashed potatoes. I had dressing, not stuffing. Uh, what else did I have? And I had a lot of wine. Um, oh, I also had some salmon, but I did not have turkey because, you know, I don't eat the turkey stuff. But that was my day. It was it was delicious. My mother-in-law just audible to Thanksgiving. It was fun. It's that Thanksgiving creep <laughs> you've been hearing about in media lately. Sometimes you just really get hyped for Thanksgiving food. Yeah. yeah, sure. Also, that's The Godfather from the historic Ernest Hemingway district, Dave Harbarger. Yeah, I went to an apple orchard today. Oh, my man's fallen. My, yeah, I'm doing fall things. I wore a vest. It's vest season. Wow. Looking oh, like Han man. Solo out there. You know how we do. <laughs> did you have right. I know. I didn't put on any boots or anything. No, but yeah, I did. That's what we did today. We had a nice drive to an apple. Yeah, all seasons, Orchard, Chicago, where, Woodstock, where Illinois. Closest, where's the closest one to Chicago? Like two and a half hours? Uh, no, it's only an hour. 45 minutes there's a whole there's a whole burgeoning industry of fall stuff around chicago as stan probably is aware of you know we got some apples the apple not many apples this year i gotta tell you we were in the orchard it's not that late in the season not a lot of apples left man i'm loving this food talk let's just make it an all food podcast like you want dave i wanted to talk about supply chain issues especially apple supply chain issues if you don't mind so tired of supply chains team supply chain that's our testing team for vegas woodstock illinois is a nice town though very Mm -hmm. cute and quaint it was a nice drive. On this week's episode, we're on the road again. Las Vegas, almost exactly a month away. And we've been working on three more decks that are all but certain to make an appearance in the upcoming Modern Paper Tournament happening in Las Vegas in November. I thought these were our brews. These were our hot, hot brews. These are legit decks? I made this deck up. Shane, Mine's kind of a brew. Yeah, Shane had the brilliant idea of pairing Colossal Hammer and Sigarda's Aid with a bunch of zero and one mana creatures. And did you know that Urza's Saga becomes like a free tutor for your Colossus Hammer? I mean, no one's no one's put this together yet, but I'm I'm here. I'm here for it. This is good. This is why people support us on Patreon. It's so that we have the time to quit our jobs and make cutting edge new decks. Today we're talking about blue white control. We're talking about hammer time. And we're talking about Jund Saga. Mm-hmm. This ain't your grandparents' Jund deck. But those last two are kind of our grandparents' decks. Or at least, I think I'm a magic grandpa now. That's definitely our decks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We'll also kick off the show with a breakdown of some recent MTGO PTQs. And I guess we're going to audible into a little bit of band talk. You know, to be honest, I'm not sure what these PTQs are queuing for. Because I thought organized play is basically on the outs. But we'll find out eventually. Before all that, though... Let's housekeep. Shout out to the newest patrons to join the Dive Down Nation. Crispy, Jason K, and Jason RK. Wow. The the Jasons showed up after Jason's special episode (laughs) last week. Kilgore Jason brought two other Jason brothers. They're like, all I got to do is be named Jason. I get my own episode. Perfect. Did anybody check the voicemail box this week? Did we get any voicemails? We did not receive any. Okay. Well, people... Call us if you you know if you want to talk. Yeah, head on over into the pod inbox. The link will be in the show notes. Uh, it's a way for you to communicate 
to us via audio if you have questions, feedback, anything. You don't even need to go in the show notes. It's podinbox.com slash the dive down. It's the name of the show you're listening to. Podinbox.com slash the dive down. All one word. All one URL. And you know, I was thinking about the name of that website, Pod Inbox. And I was like, it should be Pod in a box, but no, it's like an inbox for your emails. Oh, so it's Pod Inbox. It's not yeah. Pod Inbox. No, it's Pod yeah, it's inbox. inbox. Oh. Did you guys really think it was something else? It's not Pod in- Inbox. It's Pod Inbox. Thanks to sponsors Pod Inbox uh, this week. We appreciate you. Um, P O D D N apostrophe box. Yeah, Pod Inbox. Uh, hey, you know, a couple people did leave us messages, though. We have two new reviews this week from The Roast Doctor and Ion Don Pod Fan. I think it's London Pod Fan, my friend. <laughs> is that an L? <laughs> it's a lowercase L. I'm going to try that again. London no, I like, I like it the way it is. <laughs> Ion That's <was> perfect. <laughs> Man. It's gonna be a good episode. I'm tired. I'm We're sorry. really firing hey, at all our cylinders. You know, I love I love ye old Iondin town. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, Iondin. If you want to support the show, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash the dive down. You can also support us while playing magic with the mana traders. Promo code the dive down 2021. First two months, get 15% off with promo code the dive down 2021. Guys, I'm just going to keep talking. Can I take us through this breakdown? No, let's let's talk about the historic bands. Let's talk about historic band real quick. We've enjoyed historic. You've enjoyed historic. Yeah, I played some today. And so you probably have some thoughts about what just happened last October week. October 13th, 2021. Yeah. Okay, so st- standard, no changes. Okay, good. Because, yeah, we're not a standard podcast, so perfect. Tybalt's Trickery is banned in historic. Memory Lapse is suspended in historic. Read banned in historic. <laughs> Brainstorm is banned in historic from suspended where it was already hanging out. Got him. And okay, let's talk about that before we talk about the next thing, because that's also a really interesting topic of conversation, I think. So Mm -hmm. we have these, we have basically two new bands and one suspension becoming a band. Tibble's Trickery. Stan, that's basically just kind of a busted best of one deck that was kind of lurk, always lurking, always being annoying. Yes. Good riddance. Yeah, it did not provide any positive interactions with this format, except like very quick coin flippy games. Is this one of the worst cards they've ever printed at this point? Like most annoying worst cards ever been printed. Fastest ban in modern history a couple months back. Now it's gone from historic as well after being a nuisance to people for a long time. I mean, it wasn't totally destructive to the format, but geez, it turned out to be a really a card that wasn't good for anything other than this. I think what's interesting is that it was very good enough for best of three modern because that's the only way you can play it. But I think it was not a a scourge of best of three historic. I think it was just the one of those things that you, unless you were planning on hating it out game one with like main deck hate of some kind that it would just run over you with the combo and you didn't, you know, there's no sideboard, so there's no chance for you to shore up that matchup in best of one. So, and there's so much best of one being played. I'm surprised it lasted this long, honestly. Yeah. Do you remember when they tried banning cards just in best of one? Oh, oh yeah. But didn't they only ban Nexus of Fate in best of one for a little bit? And like, that sounds right. It's weird. I'm glad they just banned it outright. Good riddance, as Stan said. Agreed. All right, let's talk about a more important card, a more interesting card, a card closer to our hearts, I guess, that was suspended, and that is uh, Memory Lapse. Yeah. Stan, how many decks over the last four months did you play that have memory lapse? <laughs> many. What percentage of the decks that you played in Historic do you think had memory lapse in them? Oh, wow. At least 60%. Yeah. Because I had like my Is It Control Brew. I was playing Jeskai. I was playing uh, the Indomitable Creativity decks. It was just 
the glue that made blue the best color in the format memory lapse was i i really think oh and there's rogues lest we not forget it was maybe the first deck to break out with the addition of memory lapse um it, it this suspension model i don't think it's working for anyone <laughs> i can think of one card off, just off the top of my head burning tree emissary that went from suspended to playable again but yeah other than that any card that needs to be suspended i think at this point they have enough data to indicate it doesn't belong in the format. That's why they're suspending in the first place. And it almost feels like they're just holding our wild cards on layaway. Yeah, which is weird. It's like they don't need to do that. You know what I mean? It's like it's, like it's going to come out in the wash as it is. Like no, nothing's going to hang out and suspended for like two years. So it's just like you said, it's just a weird model. It's not like a clear model either. Like what their purported and ostensible use of it is like you said, has not really come into play at, at all it, besides Burning Tree Emissary. And feel free to correct me, audience, if I am wrong. Shout from the heavens. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's just it's just a silly it's a silly concept. It's almost like they, they've been beta testing it in the digital environment. And I think it's kind of fine to call the experiment a failure and just be clear with it. That said, I think most people are pleased that this card is gone. Maybe not Stan. I liked playing with memory lapse decks, but... It, it stinks to be on the losing end of a memory lapse deck. You know, if if it cuts you off of like uh, land drops, you know, sometimes just buying enough time is good enough for those control decks or those blue X decks to find whatever answers they need to. And it was really easy for a lot of those decks to just run away with the game after a couple timely memory lapses put whatever their opponents was on on the back foot. Isn't it amazing that because of how kind of proactive a lot of the decks turned out to be in historic, you know, the decks that ran memory, memory lapse, sometimes they were running creativity and stuff like that. So they were trying to get to a, you know, turn four-ish kind of time to really go off. Isn't it amazing that Counterspell was pre-banned mm-hmm. and memory lapse got to hang out in the format for a while? And ostensibly, I think in historic, memory lapse is better than Counterspell in pretty much every way possible because it takes that draw away from your mm. from your opponent. Yeah, it stinks, and I don't like it. Yeah, so, but also good riddance. <laughs> Memory lapse, bye, whatever, see ya. Well, it might come back in three months. Probably Maybe. not, though. All right, last bit of news in this BNR that is very unique. Five of the digital-only cards from Jumpstart Horizons, meaning these are cards that had digital-only mechanics that have not been printed in paper and likely will never be printed in paper in any form, have been rebalanced, meaning the way the cards worked is a little different now. Yeah. For instance, Baseless Agent was a 3-mana 2-1. Now it's a 3-mana 2-2. Sweet. Davriel's Withering can now only target creatures and opponent controls because I believe they're testing identify that the combo with... It's not Flicker with... Vesper Lark. Vesper Lark, yeah. Too oppressive. Not that that deck was particularly popular. Still, they decided to to change Davriel's Withering. Also, they updated Sarkhan, Wanderer, um, and Subversive Acolyte. Don't forget Davriel's Soul Broker. Uh, his third ability only affects target creatures' opponent controls as well. So you can't you can't target your uh, Vesper Lark or any creature uh, with that. I think perhaps more importantly than kind of breaking down these specific changes and whether we like them or not, how do you feel about updates to digital-only cards. People definitely had some takes on these, and I'm curious if they had played a lot of digital games in the past, like digital TCGs, or excuse me, digital CCGs, because you can't trade anything, um, because people were pretty peeved. Like They were like, at least we should get some wild cards back for these changes, because now 
Davriel's Withering is essentially useless to me. Uh, I made a whole, you know, I made this deck that's based around Withering and uh, perhaps even Davriel's Soulbroker. And so it's like, hey, effectively you ban the card. So I should get some wild cards back out of it. I don't think that has been a universal in things that I've seen where when cards get nerfed, you did not always see some kind of credit come back to you. Do you know what I mean? Like in other digital games where it's like, hey, changes are going to happen. And that's part of the design and conceptualization of the game from the ground up is that we're going to rebalance things. We're going to try to make certain strategies more powerful, certain strategies less powerful. And that's the price you pay. Um, I think a lot of this stuff happens because of just the sheer cost of Magic Arena and how hamstrung you can feel from your wildcard collection. Whereas a lot of other games, you do seem to just build your collection a lot more quickly. So the changes don't feel quite as, as backbreaking. Because it's like, hey, I, I may, so what if I put 20-odd wildcards into this deck? I've got 127 of them because they're just so flush just by playing the game. What do you all think? I think the biggest concern that I have here is more about <laughs> some of the other things that they said where they want to rebalance, bring some of the mirror mirror cards back permanently, potentially, and use Arena as a way to rebalance the paper experience, uh, you know, or rebalance what could have happened in the paper experience, further splintering what's going on from in Arena away from what happens in paper. And that is a big worry to me, to be honest. Why are you worried? Well, just because I think that it's going to make, I, I, you know, I really feel like for me to enjoy Magic the most, I want to be able to sometimes play it online and sometimes play it with my friends and have that be kind of one set of problems that I'm thinking about and not have to try to track the differences between Oko as in paper and Oko as in what got printed on Arena. Yeah, that's exactly the card I was going to bring up. Just like, I don't want to think about fixed Oko. Like, I don't want to have to worry about, you know, whatever version they want to test is like some better power corrected Oko. I just want to have as much of a mirror of the paper experience as possible. And that was, you know, this I don't want to rehash our argument or arguments and discussions from months ago on these digital only historic cards, of course. But yeah, I don't want that showing up in another version. I will say the reason why I'm not as worried about it is because I don't want historic to be a paper format. Like I kind of like the idea of having this purely digital experience and not have it, having to worry about collecting another set of cards for a very specific format that may or mm -hmm. may not translate to more powerful formats like modern or even pioneer potentially. So having some of this digital only experiences that just kind of makes arena more of a cell phone game. I don't think that necessarily makes magic worse. It just kind of separates the formats and the play experiences a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I agree with that. I just think it makes me a lot less likely to ever go back to arena mm. at this point, just because I'm, I just don't have that much headspace for all this stuff. And so exactly. it's pushing me back to moto. Honestly, yeah, you know, when a year ago we were all like jumping into arena. I, yeah. I just want to think about it. I just don't, I, I don't really care about it being different or like not being able to be replicated in paper. I just don't want to have to think about what did they do to, to fix Oko? What did they do to, to fix Omnath? You know what I mean? I just don't have to worry about it. Hot take. I have a feeling anything they do to these broken cards to make them quote fixed will still just make them unplayable and they'll either be too expensive or not impactful enough to really be worth running in a deck. Might end up being wrong on that, but that's kind of my assumption. It's like these cards were designed in a certain environment to do a certain thing. And once you change whatever that thing is, they're just not going to be very good anymore or they'll just end up being too broken again and they'll have to keep eroding them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll see. Bring Pioneer to Arena, I guess, if you ever want me to pay attention to it. 
honestly. Yeah, or make modern really bad again. <laughs> or bring modern to arena, which I think is extremely unlikely, but Oh man, please, let's do this. Speaking of modern, yeah. There's a Pro Tour qualifier events still going on in the format. Or on, on uh, MTGO, at least. It's funny. They're called a, a PTQ, I think, literally on their calendar. It's called a PTQ. and I and, But it should be like a SCQ, Set Championship Qualifier. It should be a WKQ, a Who Knows Qualifier, because who knows what event these people are really queuing for at this point. Yeah, I really don't know what a Set Championship is. Well, it's called the Modern Premiere in the results page. <laughs> you don't know what that is? It's not clear enough to you, Dave? I like that better. At this point, like, let's right. just acknowledge that it's a high stakes online tournament mm-hmm. instead yeah. of, and that's fine. Let's have the qualifiers and super are, you know, super premiere and all that kind of stuff. Like, at least that makes more sense at this point to me. Anyway, it's kind of semantics. Yeah. I mean, what these are just things you have to use qualifier points to enter. So you have to have proven your medal in like leagues or other events to to get in like you can't just pay to play you have to qualify to play i don't know if you guys saw this but i was up at four o'clock to change a baby oh, diaper because <laughs> i was up at 5 45 qps <laughs> well well i just checked in on discord and you know mickey was up for whatever reason as well shout out turtle power and you know he's like there's a ptq starting in an hour who's up for it and i was like you know i'm awake i should do it right and then when i went to look at how much it costs because <laughs> i have you know like 100 ticks i was like sure I'll, I'll spend some ticks on this do some episode prep turns out it takes qps couldn't play yeah how many qps do you have stan uh i should check i don't know like a handful three i have one because <laughs> i think you get them if you four one or better yeah i think you get one if you four one they've just expired my, my my previous ones have just expired so yeah i have one Dave didn't use his his Kroger gas pucks yeah. in time. Whoops. So what we're going to do today is go over the Saturday Modern Premiere results. Um, thanks in part to Bamzing's recap, but all the deck lists are up now on magic.wizards.com. So I'll just go through the top eight, unless there's anything we should mention up top. Oh, let's, let's, let's just go through the whole 16. We've got 16 decks. They don't give us a top 32. Yeah, we can do it. Let's go. Let's start at the top. All right, cool. First place, Bammer Squats on Blue White Control. Going to be talking about this a little bit later or something close to this, right, Stan? Yeah, so after these results came out, I, I fired up a league with this version of the deck too. Though The one I had done previously for our testing was quite similar. These decks are pretty much like the same 70 out of 75 these days. One thing I liked and noticed is the increase in Sunset Revelry in the board, up to three mm-hmm. of those. Uh, telling that Namor Squats, I think, has their finger on the pulse of the meta. Yeah, burn is tough for Blue Eye Control right now. I think you kind of have to build it a little bit to be able to beat Burn. That's certainly one way to do it. I have stuff to say about Burn later, too, in my deck, but anyway. Second place, Glacier 7 on four-color Sky Noodle, featuring Yorion. This one had four Obsidian Charmaw in the sideboard, which I can only assume, like, th- this is the dragon. You pay five at ETBs to destroy a land that taps for colorless. I don't think this is Tron hate. I think this is Urza Saga hate. I think it's both. I think it, well, I think it, it helps it, you in it either It serves case, both right? purposes. Why not? I, I, don't think, I don't think they're metagaming against Tron particularly. I mean, I saw a good amount of Tron this week, but I, I know there's probably not any in this top 16, but... Well, we'll find out. I saw green-black Tron. Anyway, Ooh. you want to go in the Wayback Machine. Archive.org. Third place, Basic Forest on Boros Burn. No Basic Forest in this deck. Fourth place, Fur MTG on Boros Burn. 
The third place list did not have Luris. The fourth place list did. Definitely featured Luris. Fifth place, Nico Konico. <laughs> yeah, Nico Nico Nico. Nico 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 on Orzov Hammer Time with Loris. This one had four Ingenious Smith, no giver of runes in the main deck. More on that later. Got kind some of, stuff to say about those flex slots. Kind of interesting. Sixth place, X Whale on Orzov Hammer. This one had three Smiths, also no giver of runes, however, but a Singleton Steel Shaper's Gift which is a card that has been waning out of the deck since some of its earliest forms. Um, also a single cranial plating, which kind of comes and goes, right? Yeah, I feel like it's one of those flex artifacts. Some people seem like they're running graveyard hate. Some people seem like they're running maybe a cranial plating for just extra bashing. What I liked about this deck is that uh, they ran two Knight of Infamy in the sideboard, uh, which has pro-white, uh, probably one Maybe good against the mirror. Also very good against Solitude, which is much more popular than it used to be. Mm-hmm. And What's, prismatic ending. Yeah, prismatic well. ending. Mm-hmm. What's funny, though, is that, uh, something having pro-white also has protection from Zagarda's aid. So you cannot target it with Zagarda's aid's ability to uh, equip a hammer. Yeah. Will uh, tweeted about this after the tournament and was like, I, you know, he, he talked a little bit about maybe switching to Knight of Valor, I think. I don't know if he was kidding or not, but um, I don't know. It was a good idea to just try to get some production stuff in there, but you, you kind of lose what you're really looking for around the edges but without Sigarda's aid, of course. You can still use Pure Seal Paladin, though, to equip yeah. to Knight of Infamy. Yeah. Seventh place, GPSN54. What is this deck? On an Ephemerate deck? Red-White brought back. That's what that is. Yeah, this is the, the Red-White brought back that did the wild stuff, you know, I, let's read brought back in case people don't remember what this card does. So this is an instant from M20. It costs white, white. And it says, choose up to two target permanent cards in your graveyard that were put there from the battlefield this turn. Return them to the battlefield tapped. How do you feel about this card with Fury or <laughs> Solitude, Solitude. Ooh. or, you know, a fetch land even or uh, showdown of the scalds after it goes away? Like, so there's there's a lot of different angles to using this. And yeah. I know that brought back a card that some people have been looking around for a while at, and uh, here it is. Please, this is a showdown of the Scalds deck. <laughs> Modern superstar. You know, I mean, it's a it's a source of card advantage, and then it does that kind of like prowess thing that it does where you get to cast spells to keep it going, and um, it's not non-creature spells. It's whenever you cast a spell, put a plus one, plus one counter on target creature you control. You can do some, some fun things with this. Yeah, cool deck ink. Yeah. Yeah, can I just read it real quick? So this deck is... Esper, four Esper Sentinel, four Fury, four Ragavan, three Ranger Captain of Eos to go and get your Esper Sentinels and Ragavans. Mm-hmm. Also good with brought back. And Walking Ballista. I'll also go with brought back because you can sacrifice it. Yeah, four Solitude, one Thraben Inspector, one Walking Ballista, three Cleansing Wildfire, one Prismatic Ending, four brought back, four Ephemerate, and four Showdown of the Skulls. One Savai Triumph, one Woodsflip Chief, <laughs> yeah. one Mountain. Let's stop there. Sweet deck. Yeah. Really interesting. I, I wonder if this will take off. I believe Spike was one of the people who was brewing with Broadback when that first came out around M20. Haven't really seen it make much of a splash since then. I wonder if people will take notice now. It's also a Flagstones of Trocare deck, right? It's got that Cleansing Wildfire Flagstones combo. Um, and you can target the lands with your Broadback as well. So you can use Cleansing Wildfires with Flagstones to just get a bunch of mana mm-hmm. um, while also replacing the Wildfire with the card that that draws. Yeah. Interesting. So, so interesting ma- stuff. Yeah, maybe that's how you get to your showdown of the scalds like as quickly as turn three. And at that point, it actually seems halfway playable. 
Oh, but only halfway. All right, eighth place is Jund Saga. More on this deck later. Nothing too interesting about this particular build. Leviathan 102 was the pilot. Big JC, double zero on Amulet Titan. Uh, as stock as I know Amulet Titan to be. Tenth place, Sneaky Misato. I know that name. Mm-hmm. On four color, uh, Yorian Ephemerate Sky noodle stuff. Looks like the rest of those decks have been looking. Sam LG01 on Amulet Titan. Looking pretty stock as well. Two Amulet Titan in this top 16. Interesting. Yeah, Amulet Titan is back, I guess. Uh, Zonda, 12th place on Boros Burn featuring Luris. They have a one of Flame Rift in the main over any kind of like skull crack effect. And I like this choice of two exquisite firecraft in the sideboard. Finishing off control opponents through counter magic feels pretty smart these days. I believe it. 13th place, Soul Strong on Teamer Rhinos still here yeah basically still the same deck now becoming a seasoned pyromancer deck as well mm-hmm. 14th place contrago with urza esper urza blue white urza just blue white yeah this is the yeah, like, urza plus stoneforge mystic build that we talked about a couple of weeks saga ago. blade saga blade yeah yeah so it's got your urza saga it's got your actual urza and it's got stoneforge mystic it so it's got the thopter foundry plus the um you know all the stuff you can do with Stoneforge, including Nettle Cyst and Calder Complete and all those kind of things. So, yeah. And it's a Yorion deck. So they got room for all these accidental combos. 15th place, Shatoon on Boros Burn. This one does have four Dragon's Rage Channeler and four Mishra's Bobble mm-hmm. um, instead of Rift Bolts and Skewer the Critics. Interesting. 16th, Gideon Raven Sword on Living End. And that's all we have for now. In terms of the overall meta share of this tournament, most popular deck was Bor- Burn. Born. With four? Born yeah. was born. Four copies. Yeah, two with Luris, one without Luris, one with DRC. So there's a variety of burn flavors. Are they? Are they really that different? A just a little bit. I actually never really found Luris that amazing when I was testing Burnout a couple weeks ago. It's just kind of it's just there. It's like it's good when you can get to it and but it's not any it's not part of game plan A at all or even B. I would say. Yeah. I, whenever I played Burn, the times I experimented with Lyris was I didn't really feel like it was worth the sideboard slot. I almost felt like that real estate could be useful for an extra skull crack or smash to smithereens or a wear and tear. Yeah. Well, one of the, de- the players did decide that because there was no reason for them to not run Burn from what I could tell from their list. Right. Um, or to not run Lyris, I mean. So then we had two copies each of Four Color Ephemerate and Orzov Hammer and Amulet Titan. So Titan may be making a little bit of a comeback. Um, and then the one-ofs were Azorius, Chalice, Control, Brought Back, Jun Saga, Teamer, Rhinos, Azorius, Saga Blade, and Living End. Cool. No Merktide. Do you guys remember Merktide? Yeah, I've, I'm sad it's kind of going away because I just picked up a couple Force of Negations. I mean, I guess they're useful elsewhere, but... I think it's a good enough card, Shane. Yeah, I think it's okay. I didn't realize Merktide ran Force of Negation. Oh, it's, of course it does. Um Man, this this modern is so dynamic. Like I love it. It's just like burns rising, elementals is falling, like the four color noodle ephemerate is just a thing that's here. Titans even coming back. It's uh yeah, modern is is, is so so good. Yeah, I think the good news is no shortage of decks for our road to Las Vegas segments. <laughs> yeah. Stan, you wanna you wanna do Sky Noodle? Well, I thought we could make Dave play Amulet Titan. Whoa. Dave loves it. <laughs> no, please. Wow, all the color just left Dave's face. Can I uh, can I do a cool 
a fast cool deck ink, please. Please. Okay. Uh, Saturday's challenge, Talisker, known OK Magic online player, got first place with Jeskai Moonblade. And this is almost like a red-white prison-style deck, but it the prison elements are really only Blood Moon and Chalice of the Void. And so it kind of runs your usual suspects of like Bone Crusher Giant, like stuff that's not one mana. So Bone Crusher Giant and Season Pyromancer and Fury and Stoneforge Mystic and Prismatic Ending, uh, Lightning Helix for your two mana interaction. And then it has, of course, the uh, the swords like Fire and Ice and Cauldron and Batter Skull. And then your the blue aspect is really only for Teferi Time Reveler. And then a few sideboard slots like classic modern sideboard card Geist of St. Traft in case you need a hexproof creature to finish things off and Flusterstorm for Rhinos and a card that we talked about, Dave, I think when Stan was off, Denik Pious Apprentice Mm -hmm. as a two of. Mm -hmm. It's a Disturb creature. It's the front side is white and blue, excuse me, white and a blue for a two, three lifelinker human soldier. And it says, cards and graveyards can't be the targets of spells or abilities. And then the disturb side is just you know something else. Uh, it's a what? It's a three-two that does stuff. But I think you really are playing it for the front side, honestly, right? Against Luris decks, because uh, this doesn't do anything against Living End. Nope, it doesn't. I feel like this is just anti-Luris tech. Sure. I mean, there's there's some stuff that you might target. You know, all the Snapcaster decks that are rich, just the scourge of the meta stand. <laughs> That's true. Fair point. Yeah, I mean, it does hose Luris, and there's quite a, bit, quite a few Lurises out there. Yeah, yeah, I'm not quite sure exactly what this is for, but <clears throat> okay. I'm sure the internet will, will let us know. Eventually. Yeah, send us an email. Get in our pod, pod inbox. Pod, pod inbox. Um, I also want to mention that there were three Charbelcher decks in this top 32, so do not sleep on Charbelcher, apparently. Yeah. Uh, also, so much so that the winner of today's challenge, the Sunday challenge, was Sodak on Belcher. Oh my gosh, and it's... Sodex said uh, it's clearly the best combo deck in the format. I'm just, I've been surprised that people have been sleeping on it for so long because it always did feel like it was doing something particularly unfair. So I'm glad it's back because it just forces people to change their decks around and think about something else that's not what I'm doing, hopefully. Uh, speaking of something that I'm not doing, there were six Teamer Footfalls decks in this top 32. One, two, three, four, five, six. I played against that deck this week and I forgot how bonkers it can feel against you. Like just what it can do so quickly and turns the corner so quickly. Yeah. Pretty good. Yeah. I like that deck a lot. You know, it's funny for so long you were like, I don't think that's a real deck. <laughs> yes. I still don't. I still don't think it's real, but it's like my dreams, Dave. It haunts me. <laughs> Your dreams of bad takes past, past, uh, past bad takes. I only have good takes, Dave. Mm. Well, they're well, they're well said at least. Here's a question. Anything before we wrap up on the breakdown? Anything in these results that you think warrant an urgent deck exploration? So let's say, you know, we probably aren't, but let's say we were to do another Road to Vegas episode next week. Anything here that we like, we need to jump on this to get a sense of what's up. Hmm. Or do these all kind of seem like, with the exception of like our mainstays, you know, our burns and our Jun sagas and what have you, everything feels pretty experimental and even a little fringy and just demonstrative of how diverse and wide open the format can be in the hands of skilled players. The only one that's on my mind right now over the past couple of weeks is four color ephemerate sky noodle Mm -hmm. decks are starting to be all over. And none of us have actually recently tested uh, rhinos for a bit. So 
I mean, Stan was playing it oh, a few yeah. months back, but oh, for sure. But I'm saying in terms of like in the framework of this episode, yeah. So maybe that's another one to keep in mind. Although I, I think Rhinos is a little bit on the the wane. Six in the top thirty-two, Dave. Oh, that's right. Yeah, six in the top thirty-two. It's waning. Hey, hey, if Sodak thinks that Belcher is the best combo deck, maybe we should be keeping an eye on that again after we tested it before. Give me a deck that wins on turn three or doesn't. I'm fine with it. Okay. What's your? Do you have any thoughts there, Stan? Or do you, do you think there's one that needs to go immediately to the top of the queue? Not really. Okay. <laughs> Amulet. I think Amulet is is worth exploring just because, you know, when when Shane and the Mishra's Babel fellas did their episode and F. Polish was talking about how Amulet's dead... He, He'd love to be playing it. It's one of his favorite decks. But we've been seeing over the last couple of weeks, and breakdowns especially, that people are doing well with Amulet. And I'd love to kind of explore the question of why did we feel that way you know, a month or two ago? And what's changing now that the deck is actually having maybe a minor resurgence? Mm-hmm. I mean, I know that Dom Harvey split the finals with friend of the show Mana Symbol. Uh, in a real life paper event, I think where they around where they live, and he was on he was he was on Amulet Titan, so he knows what he's doing. Yeah, Mana Symbols creativity tech also. Just some, I'm, I'm just mentioning that it is, exists and probably worth worth exploring in a little bit more detail too. One card that I've started to notice a little bit more as we've looked through some of these is like the next tier down of stuff is people are starting to play straight up like Stoneforge decks with Culture Complete again, which is pretty interesting because if there's no path to exile floating around. Culture competes a little bit scarier, I think. To it has a little bit more space because you can't kill it. Basically, the really thing, the real thing that sucks is that you just you get the germ token with prismatic ending, and then you have a really expensive equip cost. Oh right, right. Calder complete. That's kind of the bummer about it. You can also solitude it. I I, pl- I played against the Stoneblade deck with uh, blue white this week, and <laughs> solitude just felt like it destroys it. Yeah. Solitude's good. There's, yeah, it, it's one of those problems where it's like if your threat is, if your threat's not one mana and can be interacted with with some of these like prismatic ending or solitude, it's just like man, it's really tough to play sometimes. Yeah, unless you have other ways of uh, making those cards less effective. Yeah. All right. Well, why don't we talk a little bit more about the decks we actually played this week? So we're gonna take a break for a minute, but stay with us. And we're back. So, in case you didn't listen to our previous episode 144, our first attempt at this Road to Las Vegas segment, what we're trying to do is explore some of the most popular and successful decks in the modern format right now, in anticipation of the CFB Las Vegas tournament happening the weekend of November 20th, I believe, in Las Vegas. It's the weekend before American Thanksgiving, basically. And what we're trying to do is go a little deeper than what we might do on a Sleeve Believe Heave episode. Maybe not go in the exact same depth that we would on a Deck Dive episode. We're not going card by card per se. But trying to understand how successful have certain decks been? Why are they successful? How do they look against other popular strategies within the current format and metagame? Any other tips and tricks that you might have or may need for playing them? And advice for or against playing them? You know, what makes them a good selection? What makes them a potentially questionable selection right now? So we really appreciate all the feedback we got from that episode a couple weeks ago when Shane and I talked about Merktide and Burn. We wanted to do another one and maybe even do more of these in the weeks to come because it seems like people seem to enjoy them. Someone even mentioned it in those reviews that we thanked them for at the top of the episode in Housekeeping. 
I think it was the... Was it Ion Don? Yeah, Ion yeah. Don was a fan. <laughs> the Ion Don is one of my favorite uh, DC uh, uh, villains. Yeah. Yeah. The Italian chemist, physicist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's really good at passing through semi-permeable barriers with his ions and, his, and then the mafia as well. Right. <laughs> so, so that's what, you know, these Road to Las Vegas episodes are about. And as I mentioned on this week's episode, we do three more decks. Dave is going to talk about Gen Saga. I will cover blue-white control, and Shane will revisit Hammer Time. So that being said, Dave, kick us off. How did you feel playing Jun Saga? Jun. You know what? <laughs> we have a long and complicated history with Jun, do we not? Do we? How, I mean, how far it's, in... It's one of the, our classic bits. Mm-hmm, where the immortal words said, mid-range is dead. How many episodes <laughs> in was that? Three? Is it four know. episodes in? I don't know. Do we? I forget, I forget when we even covered real Jun. Do you know what I mean? I think it was episode nine. It was one of the first ones where we did the, we did the huge, it was one of our first deck dives that we did. We did so many deck dives early on. I know. Yeah. So ambitious. So, so Jund, here it is. It's, um, in some ways it's the same deck, same as it's always been. And in some ways it's a totally different deck from the way that it's been. It's funny. You know, I think if you think about the provenance of where Jund is right now, it's sort of a combination of two different things. One is the kind of early red black mid-range decks that came out of the red black lurus piles that came out of modern horizons 2 kind of crossed with some of the staples of jund over the last couple of years that kind of incentivize moving this deck from just being that red black mid-range over to a three-color deck and so for example if you don't remember the red black deck you know that deck in addition to dragon's rage channeler and ragavan as part of your threat suites you know you had lightning bolt you had your unholy heat and your discard suites uh with inquisition and thought seize you have terminate you had colian's command like those kind of cards additionally it also had torak kroxa and Douthy voidwalker in addition to some some berry effects like terminate things like that that was a good deck i thought and i think it was good for a certain moment in time but if you think about what jund can really do or what jund generally really wants to do is to try to just get to that grind state where all of your cards are worth more than one card and can sometimes be used to get multiple threats out on the board or do other things like that you start to push back towards a couple towards that green color for a couple of reasons one is um renin six obviously becomes a good thing to be able to use to make sure you make all your land drops and then also play with Tarmogoyf as a cheap threat that just kind of is big and can sometimes, sometimes, sometimes get outside of unholy heat range. So if there's not a ton of fatal push floating around, I think Tarmogoyf starts to get better, even though Solitude is still out there and Prismatic Ending is still out there. There's still a little bit more space maybe for Tarmogoyf to be something that's useful in the metagame where maybe over the summer it wasn't quite as useful or maybe we just hadn't figured it out yet. But the, the biggest thing that I think happens with all of this, or the thing that really makes this version of Jun different and was surprising and innovative when it popped out is that once you move towards Ren and Six, you start to have a lot of incentive to play Urza Saga in a deck like this, which I think was really surprising to me. I never kind of saw it coming that Urza Saga would go into a deck with Dragon's Rage Channeler and Ragavan and all the discard cards, but there's space to make it work. You know, you play your Mishra's Bobble package because you want to have Luris anyway. You start using Spell Bombs, you put a Shadow Spear in there, and suddenly you have a package with that and Run in Six where you can make a bunch of creatures in the mid game. You can search up an answer that you need with the tutor ability of Urza Saga to help shore up matchups against graveyard decks and burn main. And so you get this kind of interesting twist on what I think is a really otherwise familiar 
deck. What are your thoughts on kind of the way that this this deck, the Jund is put together right now? I mean, it, I think it kind of confirms this adage that Jund isn't just a deck. It's really a mindset that anything can be Jund. And this is just the tools that we need right now to Jund out our opponents, to generate incremental card advantage, um, and grind with whatever good cards happen to exist in these three colors. The fact that it's potentially hurting its mana base a little bit for the sake of having just the access to the power of Urza Saga, I think is really interesting and kind of, I think, points to points more to the fact that Urza Saga and Ren and Six are insane cards. Yeah, and this is basically Modern Horizons Tribal. Yeah. Right? Like, it's it's got four of the best Modern Horizons cards that ever came out between Urza Saga, DRC, Ragavan, and Ren and Six. Now, Shane used to be kind of a Jund min. What do you think about this version of Jund, just kind of like top level before we go too much deeper about how this has evolved? That's a good question. <laughs> I, I think what's what's good, I mean, it gets to kind of, I think, the, the core of Jund philosophy, which is play the best cards with the most efficient mana costs as possible and get as much value out of them as possible, right? That's kind of always been, in my eyes, the idea of Jund, which is your resources have a higher card-per-card value and is less reliant on inherent synergies than many decks. So you can kind of come out ahead. Uh, everything comes out ahead with, with you in the, in, in, over the wash of a game or a match. And you don't have very particular amazing matchups. You don't have particularly terrible matchups because of just the raw card value that you are presenting to your opponent and interacting with your opponent with. Would you say that's how this deck still feels? I would. I mean, so a couple of things that I think are really surprising about it, and maybe I will, um, you know, we could talk about that a little bit more. I guess one of the main things is like, it's it's a huge lowering of the mana curve in this deck. You know, Jund used to be a deck that got away with running four drops. I mean, Luris is putting pressure on all decks like that, especially decks that want to grind in the format. So you're, you know, you're not incentivized to play Liliana the Veil. You're not incentivized to play Blood Raid Elf. They're probably both too slow at this point although i did see a in last week's deck drop there was a straight up old school jund 5-0 that was like we're just playing all the old cards and it looked like it was from 20 2017 um so i think it still plays that same game plan but your cards are so cheap you do so many things per per turn now where before you know you were kind of pacing it out a little bit more but I think the deck, you know, we, we wanted to kind of share track record on these things too. The deck has been pretty successful lately. You know, it hasn't been at the top of tons and cha- tons of challenges, but it's in that mix of decks that kind of come around, um, you know, some at the top in a lot of top eights, you know, for example, in the challenge from October 10th, it came in six, eighth, 13th and 17th. It came in eighth on the PTQ that we just talked about. It won a challenge a couple weeks ago. It hadn't placed in a lot of the other top eights from this weekend, but I still think it's a you know it's a good deck. It's a solid deck. It, it is kind of like the mid range deck of the format in some ways, depending on what you draw up the definition of mid range. And the thing that's most interesting to me is that as I looked through all these deck lists, that it is extremely settled on. Like the list, there's not a lot of. This is one of those decks in the, at this stage of the format where there's not a lot of flex or variation between the styles of decks. You know, it's got the creatures we talked about. It's got discard spells that I think we're familiar. There's basically six or seven of those main. It's got the Saga package, which is basically always one to two Nihil Spellbomb, one Pirate Spellbomb, one Shadow Spear, occasionally a main deck Pithing Needle. That's it. 
know, the interaction suite is basically two bolt, four uh, unholy heat, and one terminate or abrupt decay. And then it's got 23 lands. So it's got one or two flex spots in the main, and that occasionally becomes an abrupt decay, a K command, a maelstrom pulse, something like that. But that, that's pretty much it. And then the sideboard is a little bit spicier, where you see some people running Chalice, and some people running a bunch of Engineer Explosives, some people running a bunch of Doom Blades, other things. Do you think this is just playing Chalice on zero against Hammer? So, interestingly, I tended to play... I brought Chalice in a bunch of times against Burn, because I actually think that... We can talk about this a little bit, and maybe... I don't know if that was right, but I would play it on one against Burn quite happily here and there. I played it against two on Burn one time when I knew that what they had in their hand was, uh, like, double Boros charm and i was like well i'm just gonna i'm just gonna play this and, and get it out just try to get this out of their hand um you know i think that this format and most formats eventually find their mid-range deck and this is just kind of it it's a different take i think sometimes because it's not quite so much a kill all your stuff and then attack deck it's a little bit more of a disrupt what you're doing and play really efficient threats deck with good interaction as your backup so against creature decks you can just kill a bunch of their stuff but in this one, you're so assertive with Dragon's Rave's Channeler and Tarmogoyf and Urza Saga tokens that you can put together a pretty aggressive plan where, you know, you have a bunch of threats on turn four, basically, where you're really putting pressure on someone to win early if they don't do anything about your board while you've thought seized away a, a key part of whatever they're doing. Right on. But here's the, here's the biggest thing about John, though. I think, go, before we start talking about individual matchups, you have... This is like a pilot skill deck, I think. <laughs> you know, and I don't I know we talk about that a lot, but this deck doesn't and I know Stan's deck is going to be the same thing cuz he's going to talk about blue white control, but I think that this is one of those decks in the format where you just get a lot out of practice this deck, in practicing this deck and really being familiar with the format because you don't really have a solid plan A in this deck all the time that fits every deck you play against. Yeah, so it just kind of gets to that issue that we've talked about a lot in the Luris pile decks and like we were saying a week or two ago that this is perhaps just the consensus best Luris pile deck right now uh it's how do you maximize value of each of these cards because they don't inherently do they don't necessarily do anything better than another card that's in your hand so it's like do i present this threat here or do i present this or do i try to interact here and so there's a lot of things about when you choose to cast certain spells, when you choose to, tr- like, what spell you actually cast, what creature you cast, and or if it's, a, if it's a Planeswalker or something like that. So I think there's a lot of choices. And as we always say, the more choices you make, the more times, more opportunities you have to mess up. Or the more opportunities you have to outplay your opponent if you're good, if you're good at magic. Which, no, no, you know, no, you only mess up. Well, I, I only mess up. And you only mess up. But some of our listeners, I'm pretty sure they don't mess up. <laughs> Yeah, so I think that it's still it's a good point, Shane, to to just mention that you know Luris is a super popular card in modern. Obviously, it's in tons of decks, but this is that that column of Luris pile decks, kind of right now the Luris mid range decks. Because Hammer is is a Luris deck, but it's not a mid range deck. It uses Luris for a reason, right? It, and because it can. Yeah. Burn also uses Luris as a, as a tool, but it's not really part of the plan. I think in this deck, like Luris is an important thing to remember that you can do so that you can turn the corner when you've kind of like misplayed or you've drawn badly in the mid game or something like that it's kind of your ace in the hole that can get your whole thing going again and the other problem with this deck so that that's like the pilot skill part the other part of pilot skill that's really hard in this deck i think is that the mana in this deck is totally 
I think, beyond fragile. <laughs> I mean, it's like the most fragile mana base I've ever seen. So let's let's talk about it for a minute. There's 23 lands in this deck, in most of the builds of this deck, okay? I'm looking at a list from, and this is no criticism of the people who put these lists together, by the way. I just think that it's wild that this mana base seems to work for everybody who's doing well with the John. So this is a 5-0 deck by Simuraisu, who also did well in one of the challenges a couple weeks ago. This deck has 10 fetch lands. It has four Bloodstained Mire, two Verdant Catacombs, four Wooded Foothills, okay? It has six fetchable lands. I believe this particular build might have seven, actually, but it has two Blood Crypt, one Forest, one Mountain, one Overgrown Tomb, one Stomping Ground, and one Swamp. It has seven fetchable lands, which isn't that unusual, I guess. But on the other hand, you know, it makes it really hard to make sure that you, A, don't die to Blood Moon. And also make sure that you have the mana that you want at the times that you need it. Because, of course, it also plays Urza Saga. So you get into this huge sequencing thing where, you know, you basically have no cards in this deck that have colorless pips and the casting costs other than Nihil Spellbomb, Pirate Spellbomb, Shadow Spear, and Tarmogoyf are the only cards main deck that have colorless pips in the casting costs for the most part. So playing at Urza Saga is actually kind of actively like taking time off unless you're casting Tarmogoyf. And maybe that's another reason that Tarmogoyf is a threat that you play in this deck is because it's a two drop that you can cast with a with an Urza Saga on, on board. Um, you know, it makes sequencing so hard because, you know, you want black early so that you can cast Thoughtseize. But then you need red because most of your cards are red and, and your most powerful threats are in red. But then you also need green because you really want to be able to cast Ren in six. And so figuring out the way that you're going to work out what to fetch when and when you get a basic land, when you get another shock and how much you can hurt yourself against an aggressive deck like Burn or something like that, it's kind of all, you know, it's all of a piece of this big problem of how to make a three-color deck with Urza Saga work properly. Because I'll tell you what, the draws where you have double Saga are rough. <laughs> They're rough. Can can you not play just like the saga game where you're making constructs and hoping that they do the job for you? You definitely can, but then you have, you know, one of the big things about this deck is that you have proactive hand disruption, right? And so sometimes when you're on the saga game, you have to sacrifice the fact that, hey, all I'm going to do is thought see someone, then play Urza Saga on turn two, and then make a construct on turn three. And like, that's not that great, especially when you only have, se- you know, seven or eight artifacts main where you might not have drawn those. So your your constructs actually are kind of small in this deck. Mm-hmm. The thing that really happens with this, and we can talk a lot more about Urza Saga, of course, because I, I think what we should do is double back on Urza Saga when Shane talks about it in Hammer. Yeah. But keep For in sure. mind, you know, you drop a bobble, you play a construct, then you play another construct, and you search up Shadow Spear. It means that you have two four fours. But before that, they're, the first one is kind of small, Right, because it's a two-two at best, and I, I definitely had a couple times where my first construct was a one-one until I managed to really get things going on the fourth turn. So they can be kind of fragile and susceptible to to removal in a way that like Goyf isn't. So then you're trying to figure out how are you going to play work Goyf into this whole thing, and Goyf is just kind of like a giant construct in itself as well in some ways. Um, I felt like I was pretty much always, of course, just grabbing Shadow Spear. You know, that's basically what you're trying to do with this deck, unless for some reason you want to draw a card with Misha's Bauble, but... This deck just loses to Blood Moon, doesn't it? Uh, it it's interesting. Um, <laughs> yes, it definitely does. You do... The build that I was playing was running Abrupt Decay main and another one on the side, so you could kind of, like, if you had a, an inkling that Blood Moon was coming, you could 
prep yourself to play play that card and and search for it or be ready for it, you know. And it works pretty well, but most of the time, yeah, you just die to you just die to blood moon. I mean, one of each basic land makes you so 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 susceptible to spreading seas, for example, which seems to be the mana disruption du jour right now. But you know, if you run against a deck with crashing with uh, cleansing wildfire in it, you're just going to get taken out. If you run against a deck that has um, ghost quarter in it or something like that, somehow you're just going to get destroyed. Before again, before we get to the matchups, what drew you to this deck? Because you're not really a Jund player historically. Why did you want to do this? I mean, I I like playing the red black mid range deck a lot over the summer. I really liked that core. I I mean, you know, I've I've liked to play Jun Shadow and things like that. So yeah. I never really played Jun Jund, although I have it. Mostly because I think that I never really enjoyed the fact that the Bloodbraid Elf Lily plan never felt quite as assertive as some of these later builds do. And so I did really enjoy piloting this deck. I did okay with it. We'll talk about that a little bit more at the end. But um, I, 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 you know, and I really like Dragon's Rage, Chandler, and Ragavan. I have these cards. This is a deck that I would consider sleeving up to play because even though I do think it takes a lot of pilot skill, I also think that it's one that you can build long-term skill in in this mm-hmm. style of deck and you mm-hmm. just kind of tune up your matchups and get more aware of like the specific meta decisions that you need to make. Um, so I think that's something you can improve quickly, and um, it's just kind of prepared for lots of things because it has Thoughtseize and Inquisition of Kozilek. Like, I, I think that those are both good kind of escape valves to have for a deck, especially if you go into a wide field like what MTG Vegas might be. Mm-hmm. So that's why I wanted to try it. And also, I haven't played a deck like this in a while, not since the summer. I haven't got to play a Tarmogoyf in a while. So, And uh, last thing I will say is <laughs> this felt like the most interesting way to use Urza's Saga to me. All the other decks that Saga is in feels feels kind of like, oh yeah, there's a bunch of artifacts in that deck. Of course you have Saga in it. Sure. But this one is kind of like, what's Urza's Saga doing there? How can you even make this work? And uh, it does work for the most part, although it's tricky and you definitely pay for it. Yeah. It seems like Urza's Saga is really there just to make your Brennan Sixes even better. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean it's certainly one of your primary threats in the deck, but also it makes it makes Ren and Six into a legit mid-game threat because it brings creatures back suddenly before when it it really didn't do that previously. Are right, you guys want to talk about matchups for this deck? Okay. Some quick quick thoughts. So the order that we had for this list was the first one we had was Hammer. I didn't play against Hammer in the couple of leagues I played with this. Um I think that Junt probably has some game about it. I'll be curious to hear what Shane has to say when from the flip side. But, you know, you have non-damage removal, especially after sideboards. It, it doesn't really run much artifact removal at this point, but it does have things like Chalice. It has Engineered Explosives. It has Abrupt Decay. It has Terminate. Like, all of those things are cards that are are good against, against Hammer and can buy you enough time to kind of make your threats go the distance, I think. So I feel like this might be a toss-up, but John pulls ahead after sideboarding when they can really up the number of destruction-based removal effects as opposed to damage ones like Unholy Heat. Uh, we'll hear Shane's side of it later. Uh, in the mirror, you know how it goes. Uh, it's the mirror. Um, burn. I think this game is really hard because the mana is greedy. You take a lot of damage from it. This is a classic story, right? Burn versus Jund is... Burn's just going to take advantage of the fact that Jun hits themselves with all their mana and their thought seizes. Uh, so in game one, it's pretty tough to establish that, although you do have Shadow Spear main, and so you have an, a main deck out to, if you can go fast enough and get your Shadow Spear online fast enough, you can kind of turn the corner and come back. Um, 
really hard. Like this is one of those situations where I feel like you might even want to play Urza Saga very early so that you make sure that you're getting Shadow Spear extremely early. Like, I mean, I didn't get to try this line, but if I was, if I was looking at a hand that was like, you know, Overgrown Tomb, Urza Saga, Tarmogoyf, and Bobble, and like some stuff where I felt like I was going to get uh, enough cards in the graveyard, I might be tempted to like play Urza Saga on turn one when I know that I can't make a construct on turn two and just try to get Shadow Spear tutored up as fast as possible because they will just kill you if you don't have Shadow Spear, honestly. And I feel like this is one of those matchups because you're three colors, because you're counting on Renin Six to generate a mana engine, your lands are doing like three to six points of damage to you every game. Oh, at least it's probably closer to eight. Yeah. I think it's between six and eight, honestly, is what I found. Um, you know, you you're fetching and shocking. Like that's that's <laughs> what the that's what this mana face does. Um, Merktide. So I, I still kind of feel like there's a zone where Murktide and Jund are sort of like funhouse mirrors of each other in a little bit. Like Murktide isn't really a control <laughs> deck. It's a sort of a mid-range deck with counter spells, I think. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, this is a mid-range deck with hand disruption. And so I think that you can kind of cause problems for them because you can terror Murktide and you're playing those kind of effects main. You can also then grind them out with Luris. You know, they have counter spells so they can stop you from getting to that game plan sometimes. But I think that this might be a good matchup overall. You also have main deck uh, Nihil Spellbomb. And so I think part of the reason that Jund has even ascended a little bit is because of Murktide being around. And if Murktide wanes, maybe there's less reason to play Jund. So so we'll see. But I, I think this is a pretty good matchup for Jund. I, I think so too. The fact that you have main deck graveyard hate just kind of makes Murktide itself seem really stinky. Yeah. And then yeah. like a 2-2-3-3 flyer is just kind of whatever. It dies super easily, especially when you have both Bolt and Unholy Heat in your deck. Yeah. Uh, Living End... I think that because you have Thoughtseize and Inquisition at Kozilek, you can do some damage to them game one, and then you can bring in Void Mirror and Chalice of the Void, additional hand disruption later. So I think, it, and you also have main deck graveyard hate. So I think that this is a pretty good matchup for, for John to honestly, um, you know, sound off in the comments if you think I'm wrong. Um, <laughs> Elementals, I think this one's probably tough for Jund because it has a whole lot of creature kill and you have a whole lot of creature kill, but your creature kill doesn't really line up that great because they're killing you with their creatures and bringing things back. And like, I, I think that it, they might be able to just have more cards than you have ability to answer in mm-hmm. Elementals. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's pretty a pretty big beating, especially when people get to a point where they can hard cast a um with a hard cast a a solitude against you so we'll see yeah i'm not an expert on all these matchups you know and some of them i'm just kind of guessing at this point but having doom blades and bolts in deck helps but i don't think it's enough to stop them oh i'm gonna go on one of my patented tangents later once i'm going through matchups and we get to elementals okay a classic tangents a classic stan rant stan ranting the usual rantislav well, I don't. I want. I don't want to wait. Uh, delay that too much longer. So let's go through the rest of what I have here. So Tron, you know, Tron versus Jund. It's often very tough for for Jund um, because they can just play something that destroys you, <laughs> basically. And so there you go. Um, you have Alpine Moon. You have Void Mirror. Heat helps these days in the fact that you can like kill a Planeswalker and things like that. But they're they're you know they can just go way over the top of you, and that's always a problem for for a mid range deck like this. I think. Jund against Footfalls is kind of the same as Living End. I think it's pretty winnable. I think that you can kill their tokens, you can get around them, and you can have your threats go farther than theirs. 
Uh, mill I worry about a little bit just because you guys are kind of like ships passing in the nights, but we haven't seen too much mill the last couple of weeks, even though it was popular for a while. And then the last one I would talk about is blue-white control. And I actually think that the Chalice version of blue-white control is probably kind of a painful matchup for Jund because there are so many one-drops in Jund now where it used to be more spread over the mana curve and now you just drop Chalice on one and I often don't have a main deck answer to it and then you die. I guess the main deck answer you have is Abrupt Decay and occasionally Coligan's Command, but you only have those as one or two of. So going in there, game one, it's pretty tough. There's not a lot of room for extras of those kind of things in the sideboard, so that's pretty tough. You know, I would think that it's probably in Blue-White's favor on in this particular metagame, though. I could be wrong. Chalice on zero. I mean, I think the first Chalice you play against John, you want to play it on one, because mm-hmm. then you basically have countered half their deck. Right. Do you think putting Chalice on zero just for, you know, four baubles is worth it? No. No, I think you if you were to drop it on two, you'd probably get more because then they can't play run in six. Yeah. And just to Saga over and over again. But, like, I think Chalice on one is just enough to stop John in his tracks right now, which is really kind of a weird place to be. Um, so we'll, we'll see. Uh, I've talked a little bit about the sideboards already. A lot of them are just shoring up against Cascade decks. There's smaller metagame plays against artifact decks and big mana decks. Uh, some extra graveyard remo- removal and wider creature kill. That's kind of it. You know, the sideboards might be too narrow as they're configured right now, but um, I think that there's, you know, there's so many different options across the three colors that I think you really can flavor to taste here. And that's where the decks had the most variation from each other. You know, one thing I remember about playing old versions of Jund, like Liliana Bloodbraid Elf Jund, was that games two and three, you would sometimes take out like seven, eight cards and bring in like half of your sideboard. Is that still the case here? I just don't, I think that the sideboards are spread a little more thin here where there's kind of like really discreet packages against certain decks of three or four-ish cards. I never found myself siding out like putting in half of my sideboard in any of the matchups that I played just because there weren't cards that were good against them. Mm-hmm. You get you power up a lot against graveyard decks because most of these have four Nihil Spellbomb in the 75, which seems aggressive to me, but people are going for it. Um, I think the Cascade matchups are pretty good after sideboard, like I mentioned, and then the creature kill stuff is pretty pretty good after sideboard as well. So I generally think that Jund is good if you really think that right now, I, I think it's best against Murktide and Hammer, personally and so if you think we're gonna have a resurgence of those metagames um i think that that's better and then you ha- you can be a good pilot and work out how to get edges against the rest of the field uh, also if you want to play like a fun interactive tournament with lots of decisions of course jund is always the place to go but it's risky to play this deck if you don't think you're going to have practice in some ways or at least be able to really watch and study what kind of decisions need to be made what kind of small decks are going to be there what decks are trying to do and how you can disrupt them and when to use your cards for this because you know figuring out when to erupt a case something or when to let it stay out for another turn or when to like play your threats when to lead with thought seize like all that kind of stuff is so context dependent of course that like you need to be studied up pretty well i think maybe more than you do with other decks um this deck is pretty vulnerable to burn which is bad i think this deck is pretty vulnerable to any deck that has blood moon in it so if you're going to see those versions of is it decks floating around i would be much less inclined to play something like this where it kills your saga and makes you unable to cast spells seems pretty bad i think that almost every game you should be trying to aggressively fetch your basics 
just mm. to like see what's going on before you know what's going on in the matchup that you're in for for sure. So if you're playing a little bit in the dark, there are so many decks that randomly play Blood Moon that I would be trying to get my basics as much as possible. And then, I, like I said, I think it struggles against control. And so I'll be curious to see what Stan has to say about this matchup. But yeah, last thing. I liked playing this deck. It's too expensive. <laughs> it's so expensive. Why <laughs> is Renin 6 like $130? I mean, it's $130 on Arena. It's, or not Arena, sorry, on Moto, it's only 60 now, I guess. Wow, it's more expensive on Tabletop now. It's a 1200 ticket deck on Moto. I had to up to the ultimate subscription on Mana Traders for a month to play this. And, uh, you know, I do that for you all, listeners, but I, you know, that's not sustainable. It's like a hundred dollar a month subscription <laughs> to be able to play this deck and elementals, I think, too. But yes, um, this deck's too expensive. It, it's it's not just Brennan Six, it's also monkeys. Yeah, yeah. Monkeys. Monkeys are insane. Bobble's insane. Uh Urza Saga is pricey. Online is 50 tickets. Online. Bobble's around 20 tickets. Yeah, Ren is 50, call it, 60, call it. God. And then Ragavan's still a hundred. So it's just, it's, this is like the priciest deck that's floating around there right now. And, you know, of course I took it to a two, three and a three, two. Although in my own defense, I think I would have been on a much better role if I hadn't, I was having massive computer problems where I kept having to punt matches. And so I, uh, blame the technology. I'm blaming the technology this time. Mm -hmm. I think I would have done at least one match better if my computer hadn't crashed and timed me out a couple of times, but guess we'll never know. We'll never know because I'm never playing this again. No, actually, I'm going to load this up this weekend and probably play it some more. So, if you were going to Vegas, mm-hmm. hypothetically, what what are the odds that you would play this actually in, in the turn, tournament like that? Or alternatively, maybe you can call a shot. Like, how if, if Vegas was happening in a week? Like, do you think this is a good pick for for that tournament? I think this is seven and a half percent of the field. Okay. I think it's under 10%, but I think it's a solid... I think it's the fifth most played deck or the fourth most played deck would be my guess. I'll take that bet. Okay. I played Blue-White Control. I played a couple of versions of it, including the version that won the premiere on October 16th by Namor Squats. Um, though, as I mentioned earlier in the breakdown, like most of these decks are pretty much the same these days. And one of the reasons why I picked it is because this deck has been... Very, very successful in modern results lately. If you've been keeping up with our show, paying attention to our breakdowns, you've been hearing us mention blue white control a lot. I believe the challenge this week or this today that we talked about that uh, Sodak won earlier, there were three blue white control chalice decks in the top eight. I think. It came in second place. Yeah. Sodak, I think, had to beat blue white control um, to, to win. I believe it won a modern challenge last week. Mm-hmm. You know, it's constantly in the 3 1 and 4 0 bracket of the prelims. I think anyone who's paying attention to modern would agree it's undeniably one of the best decks in the format, if not the. And I think that's maybe where people might start to split hairs over what's the actual best deck. Um, I don't know if I even think it's the actual best deck, but it's definitely up there. And, you know, in an attempt to try to pinpoint what's been influencing some of its recent successes, I think it's a strategy that's benefited from a lot of new cards to enter the format this year, really over the last six months. Um, And that includes Mm -hmm. MH2 cards, such as Solitude, as well as Midnight Hunt cards, such as Memory Deluge. Um, Perhaps more importantly, though, and this is just a classic control thing, it just has this diverse suite of tools that lets it 
very effectively combat most, if not all, of the principal decks in the format right now. So maybe in a slightly different universe where we weren't all about one-drops, maybe this wouldn't be a Chalice deck, or maybe in a more aggressive, combo-heavy environment, blue-white wouldn't be as good. But I think in the format right now, blue-white decks have the tools to actually combat the metagame really effectively. Yeah, and that's kind of what I was going to ask you for a second, was Chalice being in this deck is pretty unusual, mm-hmm. right? Do you want to talk about kind of like what that's all about and where how, how it's taking advantage of that opportunity right now? Well, basically all this deck has to do is just not play one mana spells. And and it's ultimately just replacing like possible cantrips to play Chalice instead and generating card card advantage elsewhere. And Path to Exile, right? That's also gone. Yes, though you don't really need it. Um, like you have Prismatic Ending. Yeah, and Solitude. So you don't need it anymore. Exactly. It seems like yeah. nobody needs it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, forget about it. Why did I buy those beautiful full RGP copies, Dave? No one knows. Yeah, but Chalice is so good against so many decks because the mana curve on on everything has gotten so far down. We just talked about how that happened with Jund, right? Yes. A deck that used to run four drops and three drops. Now it's all two and one drops. That's many different decks are doing the same thing because of Luris, but also just because of card efficiency. And also because of Cascade. I, I ah, think yeah. that's the the real cherry on top of why Chalice is so excellent right now is that you can just play a free card and practically nerf like two top decks of the format, both living and and footfalls. Yeah, especially once you can protect your chalice with counterspells, right? Yes, yeah. yes. Um, OG counterspell, another new addition from MH2 that just makes control slightly better. Mm-hmm. Um, and the mana's great. I mean, you have ways to play white-white and blue-blue cards because of multiple Mystic Gates, a ton of gold cards, um, and because you're not playing one drops, um, and you know you can sometimes even play a chalice on zero with a turn one tap land, be it a Rogren Triome or um, uh, a creature land, you still are like advancing your board state, board state somehow. So control great right now, good tools, good position in the format, and it got sweet additions from some powerful recent sets. Yeah, it, they're so sweet that I actually find it a little bit surprising how long in quotes like you know three months for azorius control to reassert itself as the premier tier one control strategy Mm -hmm. in the format and that didn't take anything from midnight hunt necessarily right like memory deluge certainly helps but the modern horizons two cards were just so good i think it just took time for the as the old adage says, right, which is just the meta has to be in a place for control to know what it's going to face mm-hmm. more often than not. And yes. everything settles down and it's able to to build a deck that knows what it's facing. And I think we're seeing the results of that. I think that's a great point because in the earliest days of the post-MH2 metagame, I think that's when Marktide was its strongest because it was able to play a you know, counter-controlly plan sometimes or be very assertive. And blue white control is not really an assertive deck. Um, if you're if you're ever being assertive, it's because you know the coast is clear to tap out for a Teferi or a Planeswalker, or um, you know trying to tap out for a Shark Typhoon or a Spreading Seas because you think that's going to get you ahead. Um, I the last thing I want to mention about blue white control right now, it's also a companion deck. These <laughs> decks just get to run Kahira, and the fact that you can play you know this extra card in the sideboard. And have like an additional threat, you know. I don't want it. I don't want to overlook it. 
It's not necessarily the best companion by any means, but it's a three mana three two. Sometimes, vigilance. yeah, it has vigilance. Sometimes it, it just gets there. How how are you mostly killing people with this deck? Is it mostly Shark Typhoon kind of based, or are you no, killing not people with Chase? Or what? Like, what do you think is going? I'm sure it's matchup d- dependent, but yeah. So to answer your question, Dave, you're getting people to scoop to you. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, okay, that, that that's Fair. really what it is. Yeah. You, you just end up in this position where you have six seven cards yeah. in hand. And you're fate sealing them with Jace, and people just see the writing on the wall. Yeah, you're like, I'm going to kill you with something eventually. We'll, we'll figure out. Right. The times where I actually had to earn it, um, it's usually because of Celestial Colonnade or Shark Typhoon or even a, a Solitude that I've eventually hardcast. A single like a single Solitude hit against like a deck where you need to top deck a burn spell or something like that, and just cross your fingers so they don't have counter magic and they hit you with solitude so say well this this game's over yeah. right like, i have no way to kill the solitude this game's gone game's over let's talk about some matchups shall we stan you got through your upfront much faster than i did i'm sorry i took everybody on such a long journey through jund it's okay you no one wants to hear about blue white control your voice is more pleasant to listen to than mine so <laughs> it was enjoyable it's like a fireside chat except in your green screen basement mm-hmm. all right let's start with hammer um and and shane correct me if i'm wrong I think that this is a race um, because Hammer sometimes has just insane draws and can sometimes win out of nowhere. But I do think over a hundred games, Blue White Control is slightly favored. Yes, I, I think it's. I think it maybe is more than slightly right now, especially um, the the in, the realization that Solitude is a an amazing Magic card just <laughs> is is really tough for Hammer. I think even even Chalice on one can be really tough because then you can't cast your hammers or anything out of your hand. You have to rely on like Urza Saga. Uh, the fact that they can you can run graveyard hate. The fact that you can run sweepers. It's just the I think it's not even slightly in Control's favor. I think it can be like I think it might be fifty five percent. Yeah, I, I mean that was my feeling as well. That I have all the tools and even you know spreading seas like chalice on zero chalice on one everything tends to line up pretty well against hammer i think in some cases blue white was built to beat up on on hammer as well as other things i just want to give credit where it's due like hammer will just sometimes win when you have your pants down yeah but i I just feel like games two games three you're not gonna let that happen do you know what i mean like you're not gonna keep a hand where you're like, well, on turn four, I can sweep them. You know what I mean? Like you're going to have some prismatic endings. You're right. going to have some solitude effect. You know, you're going to have ways to stop hammer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, Jund, Dave, totally agree. I think this is favored for blue white control. Yeah. Um, similar story as hammer. You're the, the blue white answers. I think just line up better than the type of answers that Jund has in this matchup. And your card advantage engine is stronger than just Luris or, or Ren and Six. Or like Saga. Those are, those yeah, are the two. Kinda. Yeah, Saga too. Um, and, and really your version of, as you pointed out, your version of Jund is so vulnerable to Chalice yeah. um, that sometimes you have to mulligan aggressively to get that Chalice. But then once you do, it really pays off. And, and then it doesn't take long for you to kind of maintain that advantage and, and hold it. Yeah, and you know, like a third of my cards don't do anything against blue eye control because they're creature kill right so i i do find that this is an example where sideboarding was really hard for me because i have all these relevant cards in the matchup and i just don't know what's bad against you you know like rest in peace is good against you celestial purge is good against you i think 
spreading seas and shark typhoon are also pretty good against you just mm-hmm. because you know having typhoon to two for one or just present a threat um is really important um and i don't likewise have a lot of dead cards in the matchup either so this is one where i would actually probably side out walkers and memory deluge and just try to recover my card advantage elsewhere and use my answers to to deal with everything you're doing um you know in those early to mid game turns uh burn I think this is a little unfavored unless blue white is built to beat up on burn, especially post board. Man, Stan, I just, I just don't agree with this. I just don't. I mean, like we talked about this two weeks ago. I think that there's just so many ways that you, you have to stop what burns doing, but okay. you go on, tell me what you're thinking. Yeah, yeah. So here's what I'm thinking. Sunset revelry, really strong. It's only two mana, but this isn't a snapcaster deck and a single sunset Re- revelry is not enough to stabilize a, Chalice on one, really good. A well-timed smash to smithereens feels like game over, especially because you blue-white control right now is cutting on Force of Negations. Both lists I played had no copies of Force of Negation. So sometimes it felt like I could not protect my Chalice if I'm playing it aggressively on turn two. Uh, and I don't want to play Chalice for four to have two counters on it because then that shuts off my counter spells, which feel really important, as well as my Sunset Revelries are really important. Likewise, Solitude at five mana, like... Yeah, you have to do it um, to two-for-one yourself to maybe get rid of an Eidolon or uh, a Monastery Swissphere or whatever. But waiting till turn five to hard cast that Solitude just feels like so... Um, it just takes forever. And I feel like I'm usually dead by turn four. And that's why Supreme Verdict feels really bad in the matchup too. Uh-huh. Where it's like, I kind of feel like I have to keep it in to deal with like a bunch of one and ones and twos that you might present. But by the time I can actually get that online, like the burn deck has generated enough advantage. So here's what it feels like on the other side, Stan, is you know, game one, you have dead searing blaze. You have all of your creatures that you really want to survive, not survive, because of prismatic endings. You have a chalice of the void turning off like a, a good portion of your deck on one. And you're really relying on drawing that sideboard card, maybe games two and three, but then you're, you don't, you can't go down resources against the deck. So you're just like, well, did I get my 40% chance to get a smash like hands one and two? And if more than that, I can't keep mulling. And so, you know, then, then you counter spell the second or third burn spell, and then you start getting your solitude down or you maybe sweep the board even on turn on turn four. And it's just a, it's a game where your resources eventually seem to outclass what I'm doing with burn. And then I think you can definitely, if you think you're in a meta where you're going to face burn, which I think is basically every meta, you can just say, Hey, I'm running three sunset revelry. I'm running, you know, I'm running, I'm fine keeping chalice in and just trying to fade smash to smithereens or countering smash to smithereens if they draw it like turn three or something like that. So I, I mean, I don't think we'd necessarily disagree that strongly, to be honest. I just think that sure. burn puts a lot of pressure on control to have all the right answers at the right time. And I think burn is really good at keeping control on the back foot. So even though control does have the tools to stabilize eventually, if if the burn player has really good draws and the control player kind of stumbles a little bit, especially in those early turns, then I think burn will eventually run away with the game. I also don't want to underscore like how powerful Skullcrack is in the matchup. Just because yeah. if you only have one or two Sunset Revelries, sometimes that Skullcrack is enough to make sure that you never really recover. Sure. Skill testing game, though. Um, 
this is if, if you're going to play either burn or control in any tournament right now, I think this is a matchup that you have to practice because they're both such powerful decks and it's a really tricky matchup. I can't believe we spent so much time this episode talking about blue eye control, Jund, and burn. <laughs> All right, let's, 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 let's roll through these. Uh, is it Merktide? I think Blue-White is slightly favored again, though it can be skill-testing. Though Blue-White gets the edge because it has both Chalice and Teferi Time Reveler. While the Izzet deck has really good threats, as well as good answers to walkers in the form of Unholy Heat. Not to mention the power level of a turn one monkey, or even you know if Merktide is an 8-8 flyer, that's sometimes game over. Because Blue-White has Teferi, it's just backbreaking against an unprepared control plan and sometimes teferi is enough to like make two or three cards in the is a deck dead in hand forever so i think that's pretty important and good the chalice is also great because it makes casting one mana spells impossible and you have a ton of those and then even the bigger walkers like jason and the five mana teferi will create this board state that will very quickly bury the is a deck and card advantage and is it just doesn't have the walkers or, or really any tools to generate that much card advantage expressive iteration being a two for one just doesn't really compete with a planeswalker. Yeah, and they and they all 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 of those cards tuck Murktide too. Like Teferi, big Teferi puts it into the deck. The other two bounce yeah. it, so they all interact positively. Uh, Living end. I think this is kind of split, though it's leaning unfavored for blue white because post board especially you'll draw your rest in peace and kind of just win the game on the spot. Other times, you know, you might even stabilize with the supreme verdict, or so you'll think, and then they'll just cascade on the snapback, and then you lose really quickly yeah but you still have four to fair you still have four to fairy time reveler and three chalice of the void that both stop cascade right yeah i feel like this has to be favored for blue white don't you think that that would swing it yeah more that that was my kind of gut from the decks but my i mean did you play against a bunch of living end in this this round through or no they do run a bunch of force of negations yeah as well as brazen borrowers true and even grief so i think that a prepared living end player does have the tools to kind of like make sure that their combo is clear or protect themselves with their own counter magic yeah i think that's something people forget about those decks a lot both of the cascade decks is that they run enough interaction to make it so that you just getting a piece of hate doesn't end the game necessarily all the time or even frequently exactly yeah so i think it's kind of like who's got the hate who's got the counter hate type of matchup Okay, Elementals. Here's my rant of the day. Not only do I think Elementals might be the worst matchup for Control right now in like the top of the meta, I feel like Elementals is is like top three decks in the format right now. And whatever decks we talk about in the next Road to Vegas episode, like one of us needs to cover what Elementals is because I cannot figure out what's good against it. I just have a hunch here and there. Like maybe Hammer and, and other really like no. fast Tron, combo nope. decks can get under Elementals. Yeah, we said Tron, so right? I, I, no, I, I come on, Stan. I really thought control being good was like one of the big reasons Elementals was dropping out of favor. Like especially like these four color Yorian control ish style decks. Like I just really thought like the, the it was very very favored for you. Is that not the case? So maybe Yorian decks are good in this matchup, but you know my plain old Chalice control deck. I played against Elementals twice, and I just felt like you have these answers. You have your supreme verdicts. You have these sweepers. But you can never win the card advantage game because so many of their creatures draw cards and replace themselves. That and your prismatic ending sometimes can't reach whatever creatures that they present. So they'll do like grief stuff and they'll strip your hand a little bit. Then they'll play uh, four mana, four color. Omnath. Omnath. And that just generates so much value that if you can't answer that with pretty much either subtlety or supreme verdict, it's going to run away with the game. Uh, Risen Reef 
draws them a million cards yeah. over the course of the game that I think like this is just an interest elementals is a really interesting deck that it is both a creature deck that never runs out of gas and that's just i think designed really well to kind of counteract what control typically does so unless you can play like multiple supreme verdicts sometimes just having a single sweeper isn't enough and prismatic ending might not be able to take care of much of anything in their deck um and you you need to fetch for a rogan triumph to even deal with the risen reef with literally so. anything with prismatic in this deck yeah yeah. So I think Elemental is really good. And and the reason why I think it's one of the best decks in the format is because it's both good against, in my opinion, control. And I think Shane and I would agree that it's really good against burn, Omnath in particular, that if it's if this one creature deck can like deal with both sides of the metagame, like the aggro burn deck and the slow control deck, like that's a great position to be in. Yeah, it dies I think it dies hard to cascade though. Yeah. And, that, and and it has so much creature interaction that if it goes up against a deck like Tron that doesn't have creatures in it, you know, I control maybe aside, um, it can you know people just go over it and so it it loses to those too because yeah. you know if Fury and Solitude aren't good in your matchup, then I think Elementals probably isn't in a great position. Well, if 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 Fury and Solitude aren't great in your matchup, then Grief is right, and it's like you run a ton of these, and Omnath is just good in every matchup, right? Okay, Tron, favored for control. Sometimes they'll get liberated and take over the game, but you practically never lose post-board because you have all these counter spells, you have spreading seas. I feel like Tron is actually kind of easy for control these days. Different world. That used to I be know. very far the other way. But what a time to be alive. Yeah. Footfalls, I think you're generally favored, not only because they're super vulnerable to counter spells, but you have Teferi on the board, and sometimes that's game over. Chalice on zero is also really tough to beat. Um, whereas Living End will have a lot of really good main deck tools against them, I think Footfalls is actually more vulnerable. Um, but I can see Footfalls having really good draws because they too will run Force of Negation sometimes or can play a Prismatic Ending. Or, um, not Prismatic Ending, the the new Is It Command, Prismari Command Prismari, to deal yeah. with the Chalice sometimes. Or they'll pivot into a beatdown deck with Furies and Brazen Borrowers and then Blue Eye Control just plays Solitude and Verdict and wins anyway. Right. Um, and then, you know, just for posterity, Mill. I think Mill is actually really favored against Blue-Eyed Control. Control is the exact type of strategy that Mill loves to beat up on. They have a ton of hand disruption, they have counter magic, then they just get this engine online and you have no way of recovering your library. Um, and likewise, Yogmoth. I think Blue-Eyed Control is favored in the Yogmoth matchup. Just because I've often found that Yogmoth is kind of soft to counter magic and and control strategies in general you have enough removal and graveyard hate that sometimes you can just shut off the yogmoth engine entirely there you go all right so thanks for taking us through the matchups what do you think the pros are what do, why do you think this would be what you would pick for okay so, modern right so undoubtedly one of the best decks in the format maybe the best deck in the format beautifully built to cover a lot of bases right it's got land hate with spreading seas it has chalice to shore up like some more degenerate decks Teferi stops combo decks and is great in the control mirrors. Prismatic Ending, Solitude, and Supreme Verdicts are awesome in a lot of control matchups. And likewise, thanks to these new pickups, you know, it's just as well-rounded as ever. And I think it's one of those decks that exists for a specific time. You know, blue-white control is not going to look the same a year from now, I bet. And the fact that we have this version of it right now and how consistently successful it's been sort of speaks to, you know, the elegance of its building. That said, despite the power level and the new toys it got, 
I think it still suffers from some classic control deck problems, right? Being super slow in skill testing. You're not winning games quickly ever. And sometimes you're just trying to win game one and, and play the clock really aggressively so that you always have a couple minutes on top of your opponent. And likewise, it can lose to itself if you just get the wrong draws in close matchups, like how I felt playing against Burn, where I would just have like Jace, Teferi, and Supreme Verdict in my hand and they would just blow me out. <clears throat> likewise, because it's so close to the top, I think really good players are just starting to understand how to play against it. Um, and that's why maybe Charbelcher is starting to get an edge or Amulet might be starting, might be getting a little bit of an edge. Um, so whether it's Burn Elementals or another deck I lost to, Domain Zoo, being the best deck in the format doesn't always give you the leg up when players start to develop plans to deal with it. And in this format right now, I don't think we get a lot of free wins. Everything is pretty skill testing. So Blue-Eye Control is never a free win deck to begin with, unless you're playing against Tron, I think. Um, and then the Sideboard, this is an easy one. It's mostly to shore up close matchups to bring in stronger tech against specific decks. Yep. Right? Like yeah. Tons of Rivalry for Burn, Mystical Dispute for other blue decks, Dovin's Veto, same thing. Sometimes you have an extra threat like Kozilek or Shark Typhoon. As I mentioned, the hardest part for me was understanding what cards to remove from the sideboard because sometimes you have to cut powerful cards just because they're too slow, including Five Minutes of Fairy Jace or Memory Deluge for that matter. Also, I think it's really important to remember player draw. Like Chalice and Spreading Season Archmage's Charm get a little bit worse on the draw in matchups where they're not silver bullets. Mm-hmm. All right, so what do you think about this? All in. All in. If Vegas was next week, I'd probably ask some people to lend me Solitudes and Chalices because I think this deck is is wonderful and I would have a lot of fun playing it for eight rounds. <sighs> Boy. Yeah. Like <laughs> that good. I, I, I'm I'm this over Merktide right now. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, because you did love those decks. So interesting to see where your mind is at. Okay, Shane. All right. Uh, I did Hammer Time, as we said in the intro, and we've talked a lot about Hammer. People know a lot about Hammer. I'm not really gonna focus on the the ins and outs of the deck construction. I think it's a known good deck, and I think it almost feels a little bit silly to talk about why this deck is good, but I think that people know why it's good, right? Like it's consistent and it has a variety of game plans sort of built in the deck in itself and can be aggressive and can grind. So it has a lot of different factors and facets to it that make it appealing to a lot of players because it can win out of nowhere. Or if you know how to get edges in longer games, you can really just win on turn 12 or win on turn two. And not a lot of decks can say they can do that sort of thing. That was the sort of thing that I think Infect pilots liked being able to do maybe a while ago. It's not necessarily win on turn 12, but you could win a longer game if you knew how to get the small edges and just play better than your opponent. I think that just out of the gate, I think that it's being hated on like en- enough right now that it's not the tier zero that it might have felt like. Like, and so I think its current place in the meta is known good tier one deck. Uh, we see that the deck counts indicate that the experiences I've had playing the deck recently, I think, kind of gets at maybe some of the the hate that it's seeing. But people are still playing it, people are still winning with it, and it is still evolving slightly with some new additions and consistently playing stuff like Orzov for extra mana for things like Prismatic Ending and for things like Thoughtseize in the sideboard. There's lots there's and lots of hammer decks though, still though. They're yeah, all over the there's, place. There's, still. there's, yeah, it's all over the place. The thing that really pushed this deck into top tier contention was Urza Saga, though. And it turned the deck from 
kind of a, a lark, kind of a funny combo deck into a, a real tier one in sometimes maybe even tier zero deck that gives this deck a way to generate creatures and creatures that are substantial because of the artifacts energies in the deck without requiring cards out of your hand. And it's also a tutor for Colossus Hammer after it goes through uh, stage three, chapter three, rather. And then you can tutor up a Colossus Hammer or other tech pieces that you can play. Things like Pithing Needle or maybe a piece of Graveyard Hate, like a Soul Guide Lantern or a Nihil Spellbomb. Or if there's creatures on the other side and you need to get through them, you can get your uh, Shadow Spear that provides life gain and trample. And so there's a lot of you know, just valuable things that you can get uh, out of your out of your deck with Urza Saga. And so that made it more reliable, more diverse, more grindy, all the things that you want out of a deck like this. And so Hammer really exists as the deck that punishes slow decks that aren't interacting well early, but can also outgrind decks that have some removal because uh, you have Urza Saga, you have Luris. You can just turn a single top deck into lethal damage. And not a lot of decks can do that. Just a single top deck just can be game over. And not I, I can't think of many decks that can do that. Um, just kind of out of nowhere say, hey, I'm hitting you for 10 more than you thought I was. Right. Or I'm I'm equipping this, you know, you thought you had me dead to rights. I drew this. I then cast it out of my hand with flash speed, and you're you're dead. So Dave, you also played an Urza Saga deck, and you wanted to talk about it a little bit here, and I think it makes sense. To, to talk about your experiences playing Urza Saga, like why is it good? Why is it hard to use? Like what what is it? What do you think it's bringing to to Jund? And what what did you feel like playing with the card? Well, I mean, so for me, it's it's interesting how different it is between Jund and this deck, right? I think it's I think in Jund you had to really think about when can I afford to play a colorless. Land, generating land. And like I said, a lot of times it has to do with you having Tarmogoyf in your hand so that you can use that as your play. The other thing is that, you know, you always have to keep in mind that you can't play Urza's Saga on turn one because then you don't yes. get the tap trigger out of it. You know, you don't get to be able to make two constructs and that's really what you want to do. Although sometimes you, you're looking at yourself in that deck and you're like, well, my line really here is just to try to like use all this mana and get Shadow Spear and not worry about it. Um, I think there's lots of different angles like that. I think it, with your deck, you're probably always trying to go the contract route, right? Like you're probably just kind of like going for it. And then of course, the other thing is your mana is easier to, to work with then than mine is, but yeah, I mean, no, I, I felt those exact same pressures, honestly, because you could, it depends on the matchup where against a deck where I need to outrun the removal, then yeah, I'm kind of trying to lean on the construct end of things where it's like, Hey, I'm going to make a four, four, maybe a five, five creature that you can't ignore. And you're going to have to spend a piece of cardboard on this or pressure you enough that you have to cast a wrath where I can then deploy stuff that's in my hand. And so sometimes you can play the game where you're just getting free things out of your lands and not worrying about casting stuff out of your hand. But sometimes you do feel that pressure where it's like this land is a grenade that's going to go off. And I need to know what I'm doing on every turn with the mana I have available because everything is a game of inches with hammer where it's like, do I cast this? Do I cast a one drop? And then do I use the uh, spring leaf drum to cast out 
this spell or it's like if what what can i do i use the two mana to make a construct or do i deploy this stoneforge mystic to like get a piece of you know get a piece of equipment in my hand and so it's all about trying to balance what threats do i want to present and then sometimes you just want to have a piece of mana and it's one of your lands in your deck that you drew and you have to figure out how do you get around the fact that it's colorless and you are going to lose it and sometimes that just sucks and sometimes you're just like well I basically played a Wastes that became a Springleaf Drum because I still needed the mana. And that's not great. Uh, it's it's still a better out than what happened with in Jun sometimes where you can't even run. I mean, there's no reason to run Springleaf Drum in Jun, you know what I mean? Where you, you can make a lot of use out of it and in this deck you can't. So um, yeah, I think it's interesting to see him in these two different decks and see you know other places it pops up. It's, it's really hard to, I think, use perfectly because you have to really know what you're doing in the matchup, right? And I think sometimes it's easy where it's like, I am playing against blue-white control and therefore I'm not going to play stuff out of my hand because I want to make them cast the cardboard. And some maybe something against like Jund or a, a pile of removal where it's like, I just want them to spend spells on my land, right? And then I can maybe try to recover uh, getting higher higher value out of their deck where they're hoping to top deck fatal pushes or prismatic endings or something like that. And so you have to think about the long game. And that's that's one way this deck does enable the long game is not only that it is always tutoring up uh, hammers if you want them, but it's just always creating threats if you want them. And that's really valuable. But I do let's get back to the deck really fast. And so I think that the primary points of contention in this deck in terms of the construction is what the there's a few flex spots. Like are you running Ingenious Smith? Are you running Giver of Runes? Are you maybe running Sanctifier on Vec main? Are you going to get really rogue and run like maybe a couple core outfitter because you want those uh, extra equippers, which are kind of one of the bottlenecks of the deck? And then also what the artifact package looks like. Are you running a main deck piece of like cycling yard hate, like a Nihil Spellbomb or a Soul Guide Lantern? Are you maybe running an extra piece of beatdown equipment like Cranial Plating? Are you maybe running a, f- a few Mishra's Bobble for Luris value and just to kind of make your deck a little bit more lean and have free artifacts to en- enable your uh, Pure Steel Paladin? But I think largely the deck feels pretty solved, and I'm almost comfortable saying the flex spots don't matter that much because people seem to win with whatever configuration they're using. Uh, I do have some opinions on tame opinions on what sort of feels better or I think is better right now based on the metagame that we're seeing, but let's quickly run through the matchups and I'm not going to, I'm just going to talk about good matchups and I'll talk about bad matchups. Sounds good. I think, and so the good matchups are, I think anything that's screwing around and not interacting with you. So you can usually race things like Tron. You can usually race things like Amulet Titan and there's probably a good reason that these decks are not tier one anymore, or perhaps even tier two that often, because Hammer is just so popular and it can punish decks like these. And I think that Hammer can also punish decks that are interacting with you, but they're doing it in a proactive way. Like you've heard my complaints about Grief Ephemerate many times, right? Or Orzov Stoneblade style decks where they do pick your hand apart a little bit, but this deck is so good at being redundant and so good at drawing into what you want or eventually getting what you want with like Urza Saga. And so these decks typically aren't presenting a good enough clock that you care about. So it's like 
okay, maybe you're, you're getting your grief on turn three, but I don't care. Like, it's just not enough to stop what hammer is doing. And that's a huge pro of hammer is that it's just so reliable. Um, if it's, if, if it's given enough time. And so I think that's something that a lot of other decks can't always offer. I think that's why the good combo decks are good right now. Things like living End, things like cascade is like, they're just going to get the piece that they need. And I think the same is true for hammer in a lot of ways. I think this is going to, this punishes any bad control deck. (laughs) There's people are still playing like an Esper control or something like that. Like, it's just no, no, you're not going to beat this deck because you don't run the pieces that you need like solitude or maybe like if you're not running chalice on one or something like that, I think you're just, or a sweeper even, or maybe you have like two sweepers and your white mana is really bad. It's just, there's you, if you aren't running like Azorius control, that's tuned for the meta, then this is the kind of deck that's going to run you over. I think that this beats burn pretty well. Uh, and, and I think that you're just making threats that burn can't deal with pretty quickly. Like if you're playing it smart and they don't have enough interact uh, burn that hits your creatures, or if you're playing in a way that doesn't let their burn hit your, hit your creatures, then you eventually just get stuff that they can't kill. And then you put a shadow spear on it and the game's over. And you know, then you have Onvec in the side to make it even tougher for them. Right. I think, is it Merktide is pretty favored for you generally. I think the downtick in this deck is one of the reasons that I think hammer has been getting less good in the meta right now is that Merktide is also, it was kind of fading. Okay. So what's a bad matchup look like for this yeah, deck? I think, I think there's more of them than you might think in right now. I think this, I think the, the worst matchups are stuff that interacts with you that also presents a clock. And this is modern in 2021, and there's quite a few decks that do things like this. I think Elementals is kind of on the fence, whether it's a good or bad matchup. They have a lot of ways to interact with you, and then they can turn the corner really hard. But I think you can get under it, unless they have like a Solitude draw. Like if you're putting in big damage on turn two or turn three, then that can be pretty good for you. But I think that there's a lot of ways for them to get an edge on you. Like if they're casting a Fury, like you have, you have a hard time, I think, out grinding Elementals. So like you're really hoping to out aggro them. And then if you do get sideboard pieces like Void Mirror potentially or like Hushbringer potentially, then you're going to slow them down enough that I think you can win. But it, I think it's pretty reliant on you getting those, those sideboard pieces, games two and game three. I think Jund is pretty bad for you perhaps really bad for you, especially like classic Jund. Like if you're still going to see a random classic Jund deck, like you are in for a bad time, yeah. my mm. friend, because like they just have uh, lots of ways uh, to, to get your stuff off the board. And then the Kologan's command and just all that kind of stuff is really bad. Uh, I think footfalls can be challenging because I think that they have also become teching more against small creature strategies. Like they have, and then they have force of negation for your hammers or your cigars aid or any spell that kind of matters. You know, they have play sets of fury. They have main deck Prismari commands. They have just ways to interact with your deck and what it's trying to do. Uh, And so you're going to do things like try to bring in Dranith magistrate to do some work against the cascade decks, but those can't, you know, it can be hit with evoke creatures still. So I also will bring in Thoughtseize against these decks to strip out Cascaders, maybe strip out Elemental Threats uh, before they're able to evoke them. So I think that's kind of what you need to do against decks like these is sort of treat them like control decks Mm -hmm. because they are going to be the control in the matchup. And against all these kind of decks is if they have interaction, shave your acceleration 
because you're far more apt to have to grind than you are to kill them on turn two. Like using, like you're not going to get under Jund on turn two. They're going to kill your initial threat, and then you're going to top deck a Springleaf drum right. on like turn eight, and you're going to be like, "Why do I have this in my deck?" <laughs> so just think about like how the game's actually going to go, and it's not going to go in the the way of you killing them on turn two, like very often, if ever. And because interaction is more popular right now, I think, and I think we see it in the stats, it's one reason I think Giver of Runes is the flex creature of choice right now over Ingenious Smith, because like I don't really need more ways to get hammers in my hand. I'm usually having enough of those. I think that I want to be able to protect my creatures, one, against removal and against uh, evoke-style creatures, but also um, I've won more than a few games by just a timely protection against a creature on the other side. Right. Get by a blocker. Get by a blocker. Exactly. Do you feel like you're getting better with this deck? No. (laughs) You've been playing with it for a long time now. On and off, yeah. I I don't think I'm getting better with it. No, in fact, the play sessions I had with this deck, I may have played like 12 matches or so. I felt like I was playing worse with it, or maybe just having worse luck. There were definitely some games where it's like, sweet, I outground the opponent, I made some good decisions, and or like I used Giver of Runes like a really clever way to get through something. But largely, I didn't feel great with the deck. Mm. Why do you ask? Because you've been playing with it for a while. We're thinking oh, about yeah. the format really critically lately. It definitely to go to meta. Yeah. You're planning to, to room with me and play footsie <laughs> in Vegas. Yeah, man, I don't know. I'll, I'll tell you more about my overall thoughts about the deck in a minute. But no, I think the answer is I do not feel like I'm getting better with the deck. Cool. Um, and I think it's because it's a different modern than it was two months ago. Yeah. For sure. And I needed to learn what the, the, meta, the meta is. I also think this deck is bad against good control decks. Like, I think Azorius Control, like we talked about this, it's got Chalice, it's got Sweepers, it's got Prismatic Ending, it has Bounce, Planeswalkers, mm-hmm. which I hate. Uh, it's just pretty brutal to face down. I, I will, again, try to bring in Thoughtseize to try to get the higher CMC value cards out of their hand. Uh, sometimes they might just have a single piece of early removal. Sometimes they might just have a single Solitude that they're really leaning on hard. And Thoughtseize is as good as always to get the cards you don't want to see out of your opponent's hand. Um, and then Mill is a really bad matchup, as we've talked about. Tasha's hideous laughter can just mill half your deck. But I do, I have had wins against the deck. Like I think if unless they cast hideous Tasha's, like you have a very good chance just to kill them because mm-hmm. they might need five turns. And so if you are playing Mill, just just mulligan for Tasha's. Whether it's Mill or just kind of the nature of Hammer in general, there are certain matches where you get to, you have to put yourself into a position where you win seemingly out of nowhere. Where it's like you're thinking several turns ahead, so you can get in that point where you have, you know, a, a flying infect land that you, yeah, snap, attach a hammer to, or is it kind of like you are always positioning yourself to grind and hope that sometimes in your grind you find like that that out that maybe no one expected. I think more often than not, when you're playing this deck, you are playing it as maximizing top decks is one thing. Like if you don't have it in your hand, you have to put yourself in a position to win if you top deck it. Because if you didn't cast something, like let's say for example, you're like, this happens all the time, where it's like, when do I play my zero drops? Do I expose them to removal? Or do I sandbag them and try to surprise my opponent by enabling Metalcraft or something like that, right? And I think more often than not, you're going to 
win more games by having more creatures out to attach hammers to or something like that, right? Like, I think you have to think about what's happening on the next few turns. And if you don't have, if you didn't cast a zero drop and then you can't swing with it, what was the point type thing? Like, I think playing scared is not how this deck wins. Mm -hmm. I think playing to your outs is going to be better uh, longer term, depending on the matchup, of course. But I think that that's the way I kind of thought about the deck more often is like, it's a game of very, it's, it's, it's very mana starved because of Urza saga and because you sometimes want to be able to win with uh, Ink Moth Nexus, right? And so it just feels like a deck where it's like every decision in terms of your casting matters a lot. And that's just kind of modern in general, right? But I think you often make two decisions more than maybe control deck does, where it's like, I'm going to cast one mana spell, two mana spell, three mana spell, and they're all going to be really good. Uh, Hammer is about how do I maximize all these zero one and two mana spells and at the right time so that I don't mess up and let myself get blown up by a fatal push or something like that. Sure. So overall, I think the deck still feels solid to me, but it doesn't feel broken um, in a way that I think it might have back when people were still figuring out the format and like playing slightly slower decks or slightly less tuned decks or decks that didn't have the right interaction or the right elemental spells or weren't respecting fury enough or weren't respecting solitude enough and or playing like two force of negation instead of four in their main decks and i think that all these decks have begun to realize that they're better off doing these things and i think that it has hurt hammer in some way but i think hammer still does what it does really reliably it has turn two, it has turn three kills, it punishes things that are a little bit too slow. It punishes things that are, you know, that just open themselves up, like one wrong attack. Like it punishes playing against worse players or a player who makes one wrong decision and doesn't realize that this attack makes them exposed to a hammer on the crackback or mm-hmm. something like that, right? Where it's just like, or, oh, I didn't count the artifacts correctly. And now this, uh, this construct has enough power to kill me or something like that. Right. Uh, just stuff like that happens and you can take advantage of it. It's not going to happen at, at day two of a GP, but it'll happen in some leagues. Mm-hmm. I do think that it's slightly not solid because of the hate right now. Like I was saying, like, I just feel like there's saga hate, there's graveyard hate, there's artifact hate, there's enchantment hate, there's force of vigors everywhere. There's still wear tears out there. Uh, interactive decks are on the rise right now, I feel like. And I just really feel like this deck doesn't want to see a lot of interaction. I think if I think this, that's, what again, why I would play Giver of Runes rather than another uh, flex spot. Just because of you, you need to be able to protect your stuff against removal or else you're not going to get the damage through. So... I ended up feeling like less impressed than I remember being with hammer, but it's not like I think it's bad. I just think people are prepared and I think the meta is different than it was two months ago. And I did fine in my testing, but I didn't feel like anything I was doing was like broken. And so like, it sort of feels like a creature combo deck in like a world of interactive decks or free counter magic decks or exile effect, you know, removal. And it's all this kind of stuff that just feels like, um, you know, it's a meta that adjusts. And players that adjust. So I, I don't think that anyone would claim that like hammer is, is broken at this point, but I think that you can really do well with it and you can definitely win a lot of games with it. And it's fun. I think it's a fun deck to play. So 
yeah, I'm fine with it. Like, uh, I probably would practice with it more and see how I like it over like the next two weeks and then make a decision if it's like the deck. I mean, I mean, we have to lock down right within like two weeks. Right. So we can have real legitimate practice. So it's definitely, on this my is practice. List. This it's is on us, my short list. This is us not only practicing the decks we play with, but practicing against the decks we're going to see. So that yeah. even if we're not going to play Amulet, at least we'll know how to beat Amulet because of who beats us. All right. So um, uh, let's close this one out. But before we do that, uh, what's your two deck short list right now? Mine is Burn and Hammer. That's that's those are the decks I think are are very good and and uh, efficient. So for the main event, <laughs> which I think is an important distinction. Um, it's, it's blue, white and footfalls. Yeah. <laughs> I think for me, it's Murktide and Jund. Mm. Wow. Mm-hmm. No two answers are alike. No, but I, you guys have been playing a lot more than me lately. Like this is the first time I've gotten to get in the queues in three weeks or so, two weeks. So, you know, recency bias. I had mentioned that we, that I felt like someone needs to play elementals next. Do you guys have those feelings about any decks? Like this is what we have to play ASAP. I think we should keep that a secret for the next episode. Cause I feel like we might roll right into another one of these next, you know, we're going to have to do the rogue possibilities at some point. We're going to have to do whatever the next tier is. Let's see how things keep evolving. Spicy. This Dave, did you watch Dune? Cause the spice must flow. Oh yeah. That's out before this episode drops. I will be watching that for sure. Well, that wraps up this week's episode and Dune Hype podcast. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. And if you use Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or just reach out in general, you can tweet us at the dive down, all one word, or email thedivedown at gmail.com or submit an audio question via podinbox.com slash thedivedown. If you'd like to support the show, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash the dive down. Gets you into our Discord server, gets you more perks. Dave is designing deck boxes, so finally you can store your cards somewhere safe instead of holding them together with a rubber band. Not sure why we still do that in, in this day and age where we have so many cool deck boxes. I guess we're just waiting for Dave to design one. And where do you keep where do you keep your beads if you don't have a deck box? <laughs> um I keep them in a velvet bag. Oh, thank you. Like like a scholar velvet bag like one of those little crown royale bags yeah actually yes <laughs> yeah shout out to mana traders for sponsoring the dive down sign up for mana traders with promo code the dive down 2021 you'll get 15 percent off your first two months of renting magic online cards get better at magic while you support our show that's what we're talking about every day on the dive down as always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. Until next week, hey, thanks for listening, and play more magic. Two new reviews this week from The Roast Doctor and Ion Don Pod Fan.